as I say, 15 years ago, you know, a lasagna made by my grandma versus a sort of lasagna I'd buy from a supermarket. You'd, when you look at the macronutrient and the calorie content and the nutritional content, you'd say, well, there's no difference there. But actually, the you know, the supermarkets are have been so good at removing bacteria from from those foods and for a good reason, for all good reason. But actually, you know, what what we've realized more recently is a bit of bacteria is probably good for us. And you know, and it's also influential in 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 the development of obesity. So we've still got a long way to go to understand the relationship between the gut, our brain and obesity. Hi, I'm Naomi Murphy and this is the Locked Up Living podcast where we talk with a wide range of people about harsh aspects of institutional life. We also explore some of the ways to overcome them and to grow and develop. I'm David Jones. So join us every Wednesday morning, 6 o'clock UK time for a fresh podcast. So today we're going to hear from Paul Gately, who is Director of More Life and a Professor of Exercise and obesity at Leeds Beckett University. He's the co-director of the Obesity Institute at Leeds Beckett University. Paul was the principal investigator on Public Health England's whole systems approach to obesity and he is the co-director of the Centre for Applied Obesity Research. His primary research interest is child and adult obesity treatment strategies but also the wider determinants of obesity. Paul has delivered over 600 presentations and scientific publications, as well as numerous policy developments on obesity treatments, whole systems approaches to obesity and physical activity promotion. Nice to meet you, Paul. Nice to meet you, David. Good to have you on today, Paul. Uh, can you talk us through your career pathway? Were you always interested in health and fitness? Um, so I suppose it was quite a... It sound, feels like a very confused pathway, really. Um, I was really interested in sport as a young person. I did a lot of sport. Ran, I was a runner, ran to a relatively high standard, um, and just enjoyed that. was always around sporty people. Um, I wanted to go to university, and initially I wanted to do business studies in computing, and so that's that's the degree I signed up for, um, and... I didn't like it at all. So within within a year, I'd, I'd sort of left that degree and was looking for something else to do. Um, but I also got an opportunity to go um, and work in America on on what was a sort of Camp America exchange program when I was 18 years old. And, and in some ways, that sort of changed my life because um, I'd sort of requested to go to a sports camp. It's what I did. It's the sort of people I'd spent most of my life with. So that felt like the best place for me to go. And and actually, I was uh, I was sent to a weight loss program for children, a weight loss camp, or what was deemed then a fat camp. Um, and so, you know, I walked into a room of of about seventy staff on day one. Um, the average weight was probably about twenty five stone, um, and one guy weighed forty five stone, um, and I weighed nine stone. Um, so I sort of felt really out out of my sort of depth there. Um, and that really changed my direction of my career. Um, I became really interested in obesity. Um, I kept going back to the weight loss camp year after year. It formulated part of my PhD research, and then that really then grew from there. And I could see I could see this emergent issue. Um, and and I guess in the early days, um, I was following the pathway of PhD. Um, and lecturing at the university, and that was all fantastic. But I, but to me, I was really keen to do work that had an impact on the lives of people. Um, and I was sort of feeling that the research with about 10, 20 children, 30 children, just for me, wasn't enough. So I spoke to colleagues at the university to try and sort of look at how do we grow this, how do we develop it, from just research-orientated approaches to more... Uh, service orientated approaches so we sort of embarked on a journey in around 2000 um, in in a setting of what was a research unit in in around 2000 and then in 2011 we spun it out as a as a separate company from the university so I still hold an academic position at the university a fractional appointment uh, two days a week and then I hold 
uh, an MD role on behalf of the universities uh, running the university subsidiary company. Um, and so that really gives me the best of both worlds. I can I can wear my academic hat when it suits and I can wear my more commercial hat when it suits. Seems quite it's quite um a different pathway for an academic to take though, isn't it? Because quite often people do the research and then it seems something seems to happen whereby the, there's a, a gap between the researchers and the applied psychologists that perhaps are doing something that, that might be very similar and might be quite different. I imagine that by having the foot in both camps and making sure that your research is directly influencing what you're doing, that it's easier to get feedback on the success of, of, um, of, of what you're doing and also change what you're researching um, more easily than if there's that gap. Yeah, I guess I guess I, I'd sort of describe myself um, as not a very good academic. Uh, I'd describe myself much more a pra- of a practitioner that utilised academic tools um, and research tools to really try and understand what was working, what wasn't, um, and to try and understand what the evidence was telling us, what could we draw from other areas, and and. I mean, I guess maybe like psychology, um, but but in obesity, there's there's a real mix of you know someone someone can sort of read Cosmo over the weekend and suddenly become a practitioner, right up to you know leading experts that have got years and years of training and and research and practice and qualifications, and in my area of obesity, that you know that's that's the mix, and so. It was very difficult in the early days because there's no professional standards, there's no real qualifications, it was a real turf war between, you know, there was, I'd go to many conferences and the battleground between the exercise people saying, well, exercise is more important than the, and the nutrition people saying, well, nutrition's more important than that. You can still go to, I can still go to conferences now and that's still the discussion. And it, and to me, I just think, you know, what's the point? You know, the, the reality of people's lived experience is not, you know, they're an exerciser or a, they're a dieter. You know, that is, they're just two behaviours that they have. And I guess, I guess as life's moved on, psychology and, and understanding behaviour and, and the factors influencing the behaviours of our, you know, individuals and more, more recently in my career, what are the influences of, of the factors that drive the, the system, if you like, that, that, that contribute to our obesogenic environment, have always fascinated me. I mean, my fascination is how do you learn how to create a, a more healthier environment? And, and to me, the research and uh, the science was always tools to enable me to sort of, one, make sure what we were doing was safe, and two, that it could, learning how to become more and more effective, um, because we're nowhere near tackling this problem. And so, so we're still on this sort of journey of, of, of learning. And, and to me, for me, science is part of that. But, but fundamentally, even now, I'm always looking to the day-to-day lived experience of our clients as some of the most critical parts of what we do. And, and, and strangely, it's, it's one of the things that I think has always been a problem for us as an organisation because cause actually um, it, you, you are breaking the system when you, li- when you listen to people's lived experience and then try and put things into place because, you know, they, they just don't fit into the system. People living with obesity do not fit into the healthcare system. So you are constantly challenging and breaking the system. Um, and science is a really important tool, but so is the lived experience. And so being able to talk to policymakers and other people about that lived experience is really valuable. And being able to back it up with data and, 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 and scientific and data that's been been through scientific processes and some rigour, for me, is really valuable. It's really interesting to hear you talk about integrating lived experience into into what you're doing. And I, I suppose, look for, as an outsider looking at what you do, it seems as if you're specialising in an area that, whilst it might be in more extreme end of the spectrum, seems to be focused on something that's relevant to a, a huge amount of people. 
within society, whereas I think a lot of psychologists specialising in exercise or other uh, practitioners specialising in exercise seem to choose to work in enhancement of elite athletes, kind of pushing people to to do better and better and better. But actually that that perhaps isn't quite so relevant for an awful an awful lot of people in society. What made you gravitate towards addressing obesity? Was it just that it just happened to be that the that the camps that you were at were specialising in that, or does obesity have an, have any other personal relevance or significance for you? So I guess there's a number of parts to that in some ways because um, I think professionally um, I could have gone into the sort of sports arena. A lot of my peers at university at the time are now very high level in sport in, in terms of across a number of different Olympic sports and, and are really senior leaders in those areas because when I was at university, sports science and sport, you know, um, and sports scientists being part of the makeup of any you know elite organization in that sense was really critical so so it was the perfect timing and i really did have a choice to make do i carry on down the sport pathway or or do i go down the obesity route and i think i suppose the obesity route was a couple of levels to this so firstly i i guess maybe through early experiences you know there's a part of me that that feels the need to sort of work with and support people living with challenging lives or vulnerabilities and maybe even a bit of protectionism in me in trying to sort of look after people uh you know and i, I yeah, i've got five kids and i love looking after my kids and spending time with them and i suppose this part of part of of, of me is 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 coming through in that i think the other areas where it was it was um, an emerging area. I mean, obesity was very hot topic, um, and I guess looking back, I probably bit off more than I could chew. But it, but it was certainly a hot topic of that time, and and I I could see opportunities further down the road um, in terms of building something of my career that that really could uh, I could make a difference in. And uh, whereas I guess in the sports domain, my ability to make a difference was at a, a much smaller level, a much narrower level. Um, I mean, I, I love sport. I'm, you know, passionate about sport. But actually, that bit inside me that wants to make a difference, you know, the obesity route just felt like an opportunity to sort of reach more people. Thank you. That's re- that's really interesting, Paul. You can hear um, the you sound quite a special person to actually spot these opportunities and recognise a trend towards something that needs to be addressed very, very, very early on. What's some of the factors implicated in obesity? Is it essentially all poor diet or bad genes? So, I mean, we can look at it on a continuum. I, I see obesity on a continuum. And I, one end of the continuum is, is what I describe as simple obesity, where people overeat a bit and do not enough exercise. Um, and, and those factors are the factors that tip the energy balance in a certain way and lead people to having lead people to have a weight problem and there are a number of people out there like that and and actually with a bit of bit of guidance bit of nudging bit of support bit of education they can usually just get back on track and and sort of manage their weight in in a in a way that suits their life and and in a way that from a health perspective they'll be okay um, and that's really for me the, the fundamentals are is it going to be okay in their life and are they going to be able to do it in a way that's sustainable for the rest of their life and that they're critical for me um, now at the other end um, then I, I would say you then have this layering effect so you've got people with genetic drivers you've got people with social factors you know they're, they're sort of a, a, their family circumstance their financial circumstances then you've got a, a range of emotional factors driving, and you've got a range of sort of mental health factors. And when all these factors layer up, that, in my experience, when you've got all of those things combined, that is the thing that leads to very severe obesity. And then in the middle, you've just got this continuum of this mishmash of, you know, genetics, social factors, psychological factors, emotional factors, 
cultural factors are all in that mix which which influence to varying degrees people's risk of obesity and and you know and and that that's the best i've got really in in a way i don't you know there's no other real model that you know fundamentally the energy balance is true for every human being it's what are the factors that influence those two key behaviors that's critical and and you can imagine that you know when when people are you know find you know there's no surprise that um people who who live in financial challenge there is a strong relationship with obesity because you know it's not surprising that every day they're sort of thinking how they're going to you know what are they going to eat what are they going to do you know healthy living is not at the forefront of their mind there's other you know more important factors in their day which are relevant to them so it's of no surprise that those people at the more vulnerable end of the spectrum with more complex lives are much more likely to suffer from obesity. And I, and I, and I suppose, so for me, it's about the, 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 the mix of those influences is critical. And understanding that complexity around the individual is key. But then to your point, Naomi, what you said earlier, we have many, many millions of people, you know, two in three adults, one in three children suffer from a weight problem. So it's not just the complexity of the individual life, it's the complexity of our society. You know, and, and again, no surprise, but we saw a 50% increase in rates of childhood obesity during COVID. Um, and, you know, and, that, and there's probably data in adults mirroring that as well. So, so fundamentally for me, it, diet and exercise are the two influential behaviours but there's a, my, a myriad of complex factors which influence those two behaviours in everyone's day-to-day experience. When I used to work in a forensic hospital, we used to have this saying, uh, Paul, that you've probably heard, that you go to prison to get fit and go to hospital to get fat, because there was no doubt that those residents that we had um, in the forensic hospital, they didn't do very much and they ate a lot, and they bought in food which increased their intake. So, in a way, that was a very kind of straightforward kind of equation. Absolutely. Um, As you were talking, Paul, it also made me think um, of when, when trying to diet, there's something about needing to be able to be mindful about what what you're ingesting, and that's quite hard to do if you're distracted, if you're overwhelmed, you've got lots of stuff on and that that seemed to be what you were talking about, this um, you know, the ability to remain mindful about what you're putting into your body that becomes harder if you're facing poverty, if you've got other problems that you're worrying about, if you're struggling to manage your, your mood generally. Is is there, is there anything else you wanted to say about obesity and mental health? Well, for me, there's, there's, a, there's a couple of factors in terms of what we know from the data is that there's a bi-directional relationship between obesity and mental health issues. Um, and again, that, you know, from what we've just talked about in terms of the complexity and people's vulnerability, that shouldn't be a surprise that, you know, um, that people with, with, with obesity or children particularly with obesity face huge issues around stigma, teasing and bullying. And, you know, even adults in everyday life, you know, there is, we rarely hear, you know, we rarely hear on TV anymore uh, jokes that sort of, that base people on their gender or race or ethnicity. But what we do still hear about is fat jokes. They still seem to be acceptable. So it's, it's a very acceptable thing to have in our society. And I guess so for me, we, we, we you know, people live and exist in this world that, actually openly discriminates against people living with obesity so why would we be surprised that if they're suffering from obesity that it's not going to be associated with other challenges uh, and mental health challenges and so so you know so for me that bi-directional relationship between obesity and mental health issues is is not is, is not unsurprising you know it's 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 not surprising to me I was just uh, reading some interesting research on stereotype threats this morning, actually, and how if you, you know, there are a lot of stereotypes about fat people, aren't there? Um, so that they're lazy, um, lots of lots of other very negative um, 
negative stereotypes, but we know that when people um, are experiencing stereotype threats, that actually that impacts significantly on their ability to cope and their performance anyway because of the additional stress that goes with it. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, for me, the language we use around this as well in, in people with a lived experience of obesity, the fat, jolly person, you know, and, you know, and they're, and they're supposed to be happy. And, 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 and I think in some ways that undermines their ability to then sort of, you know, to, to lead a healthier lifestyle because there's this sort of, they're in this difficult position where they're supposed to be happy with their lot and jolly and, you know, but at the same time, people are saying, well, you know, you've not got much willpower and, you know, and there's these challenges and, you know, we, we the foods that are most associated with obesity are, are described as treats uh, and we, we've got to stop people having treats and, you know, we're, we're sort of, from in my, you know, we're taking, we're taking the enjoyment and the pleasure elements, which are really, really critical in people's feeding behaviour out of it, but in my mind, by calling foods treats so so there's this different language that's that's emerged around the issue of obesity which is really complicated and, and really difficult for people to know where they stand and as, as you say that sort of stereotype threats there's so many different dimensions to to obesity and it's become such a common theme in, a, in our world now that it's really difficult for people with a lived experience and particularly for children with a lived experience to really navigate the language, the tone, the understanding um, that that can enable them to function more effectively. And so, again, going back to that sort of relationship between obesity and mental health issues, it's unsurprising that with all that sort of complexity and all those pressures going on, that, you know, <coughs> there's a relationship between obesity and mental health issues. Well, isn't the majority of um, serotonin produced in our stomach as well, rather than on, in our brain? So there is a, a very real, tangible um, impact on our mental health from what we're, what we're eating. Yeah, and I think you know, there's, I think you know, about ten, fifteen years ago, when when I used to talk about food, and there's no real good ex explanation for why processed food was problematic. Um, but I think now understanding the influence of the gut and gut bacteria and, and how that has a huge influence um, on, on the way we function is now starting to help us understand what that relationship between types of food and the quality of food and the processing of food and its relationship with obesity. Because as I say, 15 years ago, you know, a lasagna made by my grandma versus a sort of lasagna I'd buy from a supermarket. You'd, when you look at the macronutrient and the calorie content and the nutritional content, you'd say, well, there's no difference there. But actually, the you know, the supermarkets are have been so good at removing bacteria from, from those foods, and for a good reason, for all good reason. But actually, you know, what, what we've realized more recently is a bit of bacteria is probably good for us. And you know, and it's also influential in 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 the development of obesity. So we've still got a long way to go to understand the relationship between the gut, our brain, and obesity. Fascinating stuff, Paul. I mean, because most of us are only just beginning to understand the important part that bacteria plays in our life, and indeed how important it's been to life on the planet for the past four billion uh, years um, and, and it's still something that's not very easy to talk about so I'm anyway I'm really interested in this because I've been overweight and I could still do with losing here yeah, quite a lot of weight but I always found that people were very polite to me actually Paul nobody ever made um, fun of, of me but only in recent years did people begin to say you need to lose a bit of weight. And there was an, an obvious connection between my my having too much weight and then various health issues that I uh, developed. So I wonder if it's something of a middle class issue that people perhaps aren't straightforward enough. Do, have you encountered this at all? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, you know, and I going back to that, that point about about the complexity of this and 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 I think 
I think where we really struggle around these sorts of issues and, and talking to people that we care about, um, and I saw this a lot with the children and people I work with, that they really, really cared about their kids, but we're really grappling with how do they balance, navigate this sort of balancing effect of encouraging them to be more physically active, eat a healthier diet without being judgmental. And, and I, one of my PhD students a number of years ago did what I thought was a brilliant piece of work. And, and what she was trying to understand was, was, was what were children's lived experience uh, during and after, um, after their sort of weight loss journey with us in the residential setting. And what she found was that the children were reporting they had to be super healthy um, in order to meet the ideals of everybody around them that they that, you know they had to be eating a carrot stick and lettuce leaf and wearing sweatbands uh, all day to sort of conform to this new healthy lifestyle that they were that they were set to adopt and when they didn't do that they were judged for not doing it and it, it's not quite what you've described David but I'm giving an example of where where I think we're really cumbersome in our language and and that's so we've been really cumbersome in our language children and people when it comes to adults, that sort of worry and that fear of offending people, we become, I think, even more cumbersome. We, you know, if we're a bit if we're a bit too open about it and a bit too direct, then we can come across as offensive. And if we're not, if we don't engage in appropriate conversation, we can be considered as not being caring or supportive. And so it's really difficult. And I think, I think, with a constant what with the constant messages that seem to change all the time about our food and our activity and responsibility and willpower and so on and so forth. It's really, really hard for individuals and really critical key members of their life, whether it's at work, whether it's close friends, whether it's partners, whether it's parents or other family members, it's a really difficult thing to engage in. And I think over the last, you know, 30 years, Given the association between obesity and stigma, uh, I really believe it's become even more difficult. And, I, you know, if I could eradicate any one issue, it'd be the stigmatising attitudes of obesity, because I think they, they undermine everything we're trying to do. Because I do think that if people weren't so concerned, we could have much more open, honest uh, conversations about it. But we just don't have the language or the capacity at the moment. I think... We're moving in that direction. And Naomi, you spoke before about mindfulness. And, and I think as people become more, more supportive about, about mindful attitudes, so it's not about perfection. It's not about good and bad diets or good and bad exercise programs. It's about you know, days that you can sort of, that you can, you know, focus your attention. When life's a bit, bit easier for you to focus your attention on the day, when life's a bit easier, can you be a bit more healthy? Can you be, you know, reach uh, for a more healthier diet versus a more problematic diet? I think we're still on the journey to creating a, 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 a better means by which we can have more sensitive and coherent forms of communication with people. Mm, yeah, brilliant. That's a great answer. I really like that, Paul. So, so returning to you again, because you've mentioned how you're an academic professor and you're also a successful uh, businessman you're a director of more life can you tell us about more life how did this organization come about and what does it actually do um, so more life is a university subsidiary company so I in, in, in 1999 I set up a research unit within the university um, and we existed in the university as this sort of research unit delivering services to local authorities, um, clinical commissioning groups, or what were PCTs at the time. Um, and, and that's what we did. We delivered those services. We had support from charities. And, and it was a real mix between research funding as well as sort of service provision and, and good quality service evaluation. And in a way... We are the quality of the work that we were doing wasn't good enough from a research perspective to go and get big research grants. So we sort of had to generate that revenue ourselves, and and I suppose that's what we did in the university. Um, and as that grew and grew, I, I guess one of the challenges came in the university that you know it was a, it was a small business, 
it had it had quite a lot of profile. Obesity was a profile subject. Childhood obesity was a very profile subject. I took the opportunity, um, um, which a lot of people don't do, but I took the opportunity to engage with the media because I saw that as a platform to get the message out around childhood obesity, around the lack of funding, around the issue, but equally to promote our services. So, so I sort of lived in that that world, which was, to be honest, quite difficult because a lot of my academic colleagues are very fearful of engaging with the media because they don't like their messages being sort of um, miscommunicated. And, and, you know, I was always making a judgment call about we want to get our message out there, but are we going to be too, are we going to be too uh, focused on getting the perfect message out there such that we wouldn't engage with the media? So it was always a tough balancing act. But you know, I was always driven by how can we reach more people? Um, and so that journey of 11 years at the university was a fantastic journey of, of learning within a very robust organisation like a university that were very supportive. But as we got bigger um, and as I became probably a bit more challenging to the university, you know, we were, get, we were growing as an organisation. We were now working with a few thousand people a year. Um, and one of the challenges for the university was how does this sort of growing sort of entity fit within the university governance? And, and I became a bit of a pain, really. If, if, you know, truth be told, I became a bit of a pain for the university. At the same time, universities were going through a change. You know, funding was changing. The way the funding system was changing had a big influence on universities and, and how it thought about the future and started thinking more about consolidating its actions around its students rather than this sort of risky, fledgling business. And so we came to the agreement the best thing to do was to spin us out as a separate entity. So it's owned by the university, part owned by the university, part owned by me, um, and part owned by staff. So that was the sort of vision at that time. Um, and I, I suppose that did a couple of things, really. It, it put us out on our own. I mean, we didn't have the protection of a big you know, £250 million organisation, we were on our own and we had to go and earn the money ourselves and, um, and you know, and drive the, the business, if you like, um, in that way. But the relationship has always remained strong because, because you know, my, my belief in evidence-based practice being critical um, and, and I think the university's belief in, in practice-based evidence being important you know, and, and we are, you know, we're, a, we're sort of an old polytechnic, Leeds Beckett University. Um, and from that perspective, we've got a lot of vocational subjects within our health department, within our educational department, within our sports department. And, you know, from nursing to dietetics, to nutrition, to PE and uh, school, uh, school education, we're all part of this real nice mix of an organisation that could be out there working with people functioning as a business independently but with the support and backing of a university that could also benefit from from the many thousands of people now that were working through our programs and we had you know students and uh, undergraduate students master's students phds i mean i think we're in the region of 30 40 phds now have come on the back of of the sort of work that we've done and and to me that's 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 fantastic. It's all part of this very strongly mutually beneficial relationship between Morelife and the university. Um, and, you know, that it's, it, I guess, you know, I, I guess looking back on it, it was very, very difficult, but I just followed my nose along the way and, you know, worked out as I went along. And, you know, some days were, some days were fantastic and some days were really challenging. But I guess that's like most people's journey. And, and I, I guess in me is a character that is one, it, it, I don't know, I, I, I find, I seem to find the hardest way to do things. Um, but, but in essence, I think they're hard because in many ways it's breaking new ground. You know, it's what we've been doing is innovative. You know, it's really, really steeped around our balancing between the lived experience of the people that we're working with, um, the children, the family, the adults. Uh, and stakeholders, as well as the sort of research practice and my academic colleagues guiding me in that way. And I, I was really thought I've been really fortunate with some fantastic mentors. And and one of them said to me, you know, you're 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 like a conductor, Paul. You you're sort of terrible at any part, but your ability to pull it all together is 
is really the strength. So I'm not an expert in any one of those areas, but I know what the dietetic experts are. I know what my psychology experts are, my medics, my researchers, the professors. And whilst I'm a professor, I still I still don't believe I'm a professor. And most of my friends uh, from, from school don't believe it was possible for someone from Manchester to become a professor. But 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 I guess that's just part of that journey that I've I've just been good at corralling all those different parts to a critical mass, which has enabled us to grow. But but as I say, it, it's really the expertise of other people has been the driving force of this, and and I've just corralled those people together, and I think that's been that's been what's made it work. Sounds like it's been quite uh, an adventure. I'm not sure that uh, you're really someone who does things the hard way because it sounds as if you break new ground and that sometimes that can be hard <laughs> so <laughs> where do you get your referrals from so a real mix really i mean you know um so it depends where we are obviously i mean where we're delivering ccg uh, nhs related contracts much of those referrals will come through the nhs where we're delivering local authority again the nhs or our primary care colleagues or schools or social workers, a real real mix. And in our local authority work, uh, we have a lot of self-referrals. So part of the work that we're doing in, in a local area, we would have a variety of marketing tactics uh, for the More Life brand. So if we're in a local area, we are marketing advertising to people in that area uh, to deliver the free services that, that are paid for by the local authority or, or clinical commissioning group. Can I, can I ask, do you, do you work with people who are in hospital or more sort of specialist services? We, we do. You see a lot of obesity in psych, psychiatric populations. Yeah, I, I guess I guess not so much. We, we have done um, and we, we've looked at this, but it's, um, and we've been asked in certain areas to engage with particular uh, groups of people and, it, and it's it's often... An individual in that location um, that that for whatever reason sees a problem and sees that we can help but they tend to be one-off projects because like anything that you know there's a lot of work to do and there's a lot of you know there's there's a lot of work to do and there's a lot of system change required when when trying to think about individuals in those environments in a way that we can support them to live a healthy lifestyle and you 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 guys will know much better than me but but the sort of the the flex in the system the resource in the and the extra resource in the system that it takes to really drive these things forward is really hard and i think and i think at the moment we still we still have obesity policies that are right at the simple end of obesity. You know, they're still about how do we educate people? How do we do bans on marketing, advertising? So very much preventative. And then we do a bit of education. And, you know, in CCGs, we do a bit of psychological support for people going through bariatric surgery or that might need medication. But, but we are then, we are so short on the many, many additional millions of people. And I would say hundreds of thousands of people that are really living complex lives, um, including their environment, as you're as you're describing, Naomi, within a sort of an impatient um, an impatient sort of setting, um, but but then wider from that as well. And we have not scratched the surface on any of that stuff, and 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 it and it really frustrates me because I think there's a lot we could do. There's a lot we could do if we had the if we if we had the right um, support and resources to do it. Um, so I, I, you know, I think regrettably we're really at the early stages of reaching into what I would argue are the communities that we could have the most success with and the most impact. It's still going to be complex, but those people living that are at the most vulnerable end of the spectrum are also the ones that are likely to be to cost our healthcare system or our social care system a lot more money and we've still not addressed that issue yet you know and, and I think there's, they're already getting a lot of support and I think for a relatively small amount of additional support we could really see some major gains 
Um, but you know as well as I do that that that's a long road um, to sort of you know creating the business case, creating the sort of evidence base, creating the health economics that that really would would really change attitudes um, and and change I think very outdated attitudes about about um, about people's choices. You know that you know that that a lot of uh, you know there's still a big attitude that people choose to be obese, um, and therefore it's their choice, and therefore they should sort it out themselves. And you know I can imagine within some of the populations you might work with as well that you know, there's an element about well you know it's their choice or it's their fault or you know all these all these you know it's for me excuses that 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 are questioning really good quality care that we could give. So it sounds from what you're saying, Paul, that your business has expanded and grown quite a lot since you began all those years ago, but you clearly think there's a lot more uh, it could do and a a lot of ways that it could uh, progress. So what services do you actually provide? So we're, we're working with about 90,000 people a year now. So we have grown considerably and, and, I, and I guess um, we do that at a number of levels. So, so as I've said, we work in local authorities um, and clinical commissioning groups. Uh, so we, we, we sort of bid for services in, in areas um, and, and if we're successful, we then take on board those services. And, and they're likely to be sort of... Um, what we call tier one, tier two, or tier three weight management services. So tier one is offering lifestyle advice to the larger community. Tier two is more short-term interventions um, on in a digital setting or in a in a sort of face-to-face setting where we get people around, talk about diet, exercise, health, mental health, emotions, and and try and move them forward in that perspective. And then tier three is a multidisciplinary team will usually include a sort of consultant and endocrinologist, GPs, psychologists. Um, we tend to use health psychologists um, and and then therapists, nutritionists, exercise. So part of that multidisciplinary team. And as you'll be very familiar with any sort of multidisciplinary team, that's a sort of regular monitor review intervention process that we work in. But most of those services are delivered in a community setting. Um, and whereas there's still quite a lot of multidisciplinary teams delivered out of hospital settings, uh, we find that we can get much more reach for a much lower cost working working in the communities. And so, so that's where we work really um, in on those face-to-face and digital platforms. And obviously, COVID has has changed a lot for us in the last few years, like many people. And uh, so we we have our sort of digital services now, and we are a provider to. NHS England as part of their weight management, um, online weight management support program, their digital weight management support. I guess in addition to that, we, we then, we work with a number of companies um, and we've worked with charities on either research focused projects or pilot projects for specific groups, or we work with companies that, that recognize the health, you know, recognizing more and more the health and wellness of their employees uh, and how we might help them. So those tend to be the sort of target groups and settings that, that we would work in. Um, we do a bit of work around health checks and smoking cessation as well and physical activity promotion, healthy eating. Um, and that's just part of the mix of, 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 of services that we offer to some local authorities that want more than just the weight management element. Thank you. Oh, that's very interesting. When Naomi and I started doing this podcast, we were really interested in finding things that made a difference. Um, and we're still on that search. I mean, we've spoken to loads and loads of really interesting people who do very powerful uh, interventions and activities. But uh, if you were to say a couple of things that really work, what would they be, do you think? I think it's really interesting that, and I, and I still I was interviewed a long time ago in our in our residential children's program, um, and this was really early days. And this journalist spoke to me. He said, "You know, what's the what do you do?" And I and I and I he still sticks with me now. What I what I said because I think 
course, I've got no evidence for this whatsoever. And as an academic, you know, you sort of got to hold my hand up. But, but I think what, what we're trying to do is change the spirit of the individual. And, and when I mean spirit is their sort of their ability to sort of deal with the, the day to day setbacks that they face. And that a lot of the work that we do tends to sort of try and, and enable people generate that sort of that that understanding of, and, and reflection, their understanding of the self. And their ability to then sort of face on a day-to-day basis the sort of challenges that we all face, and you know, but but in a way that, in a way that um, is constructive and positive. And I guess, I guess a lot of um, you know, we've moved from the early day trying to educate people to to really, you know, we we, we talk about our program being psychological informed, and and really, you know. I would say the sort of real strength of the work we've done is we have an, an amazing team uh, led by our clinical lead of psychologists and, and that, that really are adding a layer of, of, of support that is way beyond that sort of educational heritage that obesity has. Um, and, and I think we're still early in that journey and, and you know, and I... Um, and it's 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 a really interesting journey, and you know I I see the importance of enabling people shifting their sort of their mindset, their sort of attitudes, their, and 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 supporting them through that journey is I think what we've done, and that's why I sort of that's why I've always tried to that's why for me capturing the word spirit. Is has always been quite powerful in what we've been trying to do. So could we broaden that out a bit further, Paul? I'm just thinking about because a lot of that seems to be about the approach to the individual. But I'm just thinking about your experience at the university, developing your own company, and what you know about people generally. What are there any lessons from that for the organisation about the organisation's functioning? You know, what are the ingredients of a healthy organisation that allows that kind of attitude and, and develops the spirit, um, the right kind of spirit for the individual? Yeah, and I, and I guess back to the, back to what we were talking about earlier about breaking those breaking those breaking ground and breaking those barriers down has always been part of the challenge of this work, really, and. And I guess, I, I guess for me, um, being courageous is really critical. And and I and I guess you know, I've always been courageous, but in a sense, I've always felt it's really easy because I've spent time with children and young people and their parents and adults. And when you listen to their lived experience, it's really, I believe it's really easy to walk into any other environment because they're on my shoulder and, and I'm sort of there on behalf of them and with them. And and so and so I'm not too nervous about making... I mean, I probably should be more diplomatic than I am. I mean, that's, that's the one thing that I, you know, but I'm passionate and I think the balance of that passion really comes through. But... But it's, it, I, I genuinely believe it's easy. It's been easy for me to be courageous and passionate because when I'm listening to the challenging experiences of some of the children and adults that I've worked with, my life's easy compared to theirs. And so, you know, I, I, I'm standing there on behalf of them. And, I've, you know, I've, I've got myself in trouble, at, you know, with politicians and with senior civil servants for, for really pushing agendas. But I've not, I've, you know, I've not been worried about that because... I know that I'm stood there and I'm sat or I'm sat there on behalf of people I'm working with, and I think, I, in a sense, I think that that's been really critical. And being an academic as well, in the early days that we were growing this organisation, being courageous was also easy when we had a big when I was part of a big organisation like the university, because the university allowed me to, you know, being an academic allows you to be controversial and challenging and challenge the status quo, uh, because that's really what research is about. And so, so that there was another, you know, probably building block there was my ability to sort of challenge, but but in a in a way constructively supported by an organisation that that is about challenge. 
Um, and then, and I think more more recently, um, the 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 sort of what I've learned because what what I wasn't very good at is is that sort of leadership side. I mean, I, you know, I just brought people with me on my passion, and I, and I, and as we've grown to be an organisation of about 180 people, some of those some of that, those real passionate entrepreneurial skills start to sort of start to run out when you're working with all, a bigger organisation. You've got to create, you know, you, you know, at the heart of things like that, clinical governance, having the right people in the right systems and the right processes, all working in a much more collaborative way. And, you know, I'm still on my, le- my leadership journey. Uh, I'm still learning as going along. But, you know, I guess... I guess that, that, that's what I'd say, that the leadership, being courageous um, and, and, and having the voice of those stakeholders always close to me has been really, really valuable to me in breaking those boundaries and sort of challenging the sort of status quo. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm nowhere near where I'd like to be on my journey. And I feel as though I've done you know, a small percentage of, of change to the system. But, but you know, it's what I've chosen to do. It's what I enjoy, enjoy doing. And, and, and I've, I suspect I'm going to be doing it for some time to go. It's really interesting to hear you having people with lived experience being so central to your experience. It sounds like that keeps you on the right path in terms of making sure that the organisation's healthy because... Ultimately, what you've got to, at its best interest is the is the is the interest of the people that you're serving. That's right, and and it was always you know it's it, that's one of the challenges as well. One of the big challenges is spinning out of the university and becoming a sort of a company was was the sort of question of well you know how, how does that work and you're now a private provider and and so on and so forth and you can you can imagine all those challenges, but. But, but in a sense, that lived experience of people is always at the heart. Um, and, you know, and, and at the end of the day, that, that's what we're always working to and always communicating. And, and the evidence of, of, of what we do is, is really clear. I mean, even the term More Life, you know, we came, even the brand More Life, we, you know, that name came from working with actually groups of children and young people. And we were sort of asking them, we were trying to rebrand as part of spinning out the university and setting it up. And we, you know, we said we worked with children and people and their parents and adults and said we were trying to understand what we meant to them and they said you give us more life and and you know that was perfect because that really really resonated with me that's all I wanted to do that was the only objective we had and you know and they were playing this back to us and so that became the brand name um more life because that's what people were saying we did and you know to me that was incredibly rewarding and it's still you know, it's it's a term we don't harness enough uh, in the work that we do. But but at the same time, the those lived experiences always, you know, keep us close to to staying on the straight and narrow. Because it because there's so many there's so many challenges. You know, funding and attitudes around obesity, and you know, there's so many different things going on in the system that that you know, being true to what the people that you're working with and on behalf of is is really powerful for me. Thank you. Thank you. So, Paul, what would you change about society? This is a big question. What would you change about society to reduce obesity? What we've got to try and change the narrative about obesity because the stigma... Is, is a really powerful barrier to tackling the problem. So, so for me, that, that's one of the first things that we need to change. Um, and we, there's many ways we can do that. Language is important, challenging discrimination and you know, discriminatory language. We now use, we now, you know, last five years, we've seen an emergence of people first language in the area of obesity that wasn't around, you know, five, 10 years ago. So we're slowly but surely sort of changing that 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 sort of narrative. I think we've got to. There has been a shift as well in attitudes of of obesity being an individual's choice. You know, there is still very strong attitudes suggesting that 
individual responsibility is important. And, you know, and don't get me wrong, there is an element of individual responsibility in this because as we were talking before, um, we all eat and we all are physically active uh, and we all have choices. But those, you know, where the choices are stacked against us, we've got to be sensitive and supportive of people versus, you know, um, challenging and, and in, in many ways discriminatory against them because, you know, it's a zero-sum game. You know, if we, if we what, all, what I know from all the work we've done, if we stigmatise and challenge people on their, on their behaviours of their diet and physical activity and their weight, what we will do is we will absolutely increase their weight over time. That is the sure thing we will do. And so we've just got to get better at the use of our language and being supportive. And it doesn't mean sticking our heads in the sand, as we were talking about earlier, but it does mean we engage much more constructively, effectively, caring in, in, in the language that we use with, with people. And I think that's part of, of that narrative. I think the other thing we have to do, uh, and I think this really needs a lot of leadership, and we are, I think, we're sorely lacking that leadership at the moment with, with, with a lot of, you know, big geopolitical issues going on. But, but we need strong leadership on this agenda. Um, and we need long-term attitudes around this as an agenda. I mean, obesity is, is one of the three most costly global issues uh, around similar to sort of around the same scale as smoking and armed conflict. So obesity is right up there. Climate change is quite well down in the sort of level, but, but in a set you can see the groundswell of, of collaboration around climate change now. Of course, there's still naysayers out there, but collectively we've seen a real change in attitudes and our approaches to climate change over the last sort of 30, 50 years, and I'd say over the last 20 years, a real acceleration of a collaborative effect. And I think we need the same for obesity. So we need real strong leadership around that. But we also need collaborative ways of working. And I've always, I've always come at this from a very collaborative uh, direction. So I'll have anybody in the room because the, 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 the young person I've worked with um, you know, that, that goes to McDonald's or goes to another sort of, you know, uh, fast food restaurant. I can't be demonising them on a day-by-day -day basis because it's so unhelpful. You know, they will go. They will go and eat at fast food outlets. They will go and eat chocolate. They will go and eat crisps. But actually, if I can enable them to enjoy that, uh, but enjoy a rich mix of food as part of their diet and not feel so guilty about it, and also to, to, be, to do that, that dietary behaviour as part of a healthy, active lifestyle. You know, if I can do that and can shift the needle on those things, then, then that will lead to the impacts that we all collectively want. And so for me, there's a real need for collective action in this, in, in this space. Um, and we're, still, we're sort of still at this very adversarial approach. So, you know, in the media, you'll see the sort of, the talk of fast food companies versus the government all the time. And, and to me, it's really unhelpful uh, because when I talk to people living with obesity, they're sort of thinking, well, well where am I? Am I, you know, am I stupid and vulnerable to the food companies or, you know, do I need help from the government or, you know, so it's a really difficult place for us to be. And I think we need to shift that narrative, change that narrative to, to sort of recognize it's an issue many many millions of people suffer from the issue but there's actually a lot lot we can do at a macro level and right down to an individual level but we've got to organize ourselves as stakeholders to work in that way and and at the moment the the i i would argue that the system rewards those those that want to create a problem rather than create a solution so what i mean by that we get food you know food advocates and uh, that are on tv and shouting from the rooftops and that's all well and good but it creates a very sort of polarized view and it, it creates a setting of good and bad food and people most normal people everybody i'm saying doesn't live like that they don't live on a, a day of good and bad they we all eat a diet of food and yes there's there's some with more calories in it than others um, but 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 it, we can't you know we can't just live to a sort of an equation. It doesn't help, and so it's about getting that balance right. Yeah, yeah very good points there.
But, um, but I feel that was a really long-winded, waffly answer. Well, it was lengthy. I don't know about long-winded. Um, but I think you did mention smoking. And, of course, there has been a relatively successful campaign over many years to reduce the level of smoking. And, and one could argue that it's mainly, but not entirely, been successful. Um, and I wonder what it was about, you know, the, because obesity doesn't seem to have the same kind of grip as an issue, even though it poses many similar problems, as you're, as you're saying. So I wonder what the difference is between those two sets of problems. I think there are a number of similarities. I think you're right, there are a number of similarities. But there are also a number of quite, I think, important differences. And, you know, smoking is a singular behaviour that we don't actually need to do. Um, and there are, it, there are easier ways to control it. So the fundamental biggest shift we've seen is, 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 is around the, the fact that those people challenging smoking behaviour were able to argue a case that secondhand smoke was really important as, as, part of, as part of the sort of health issue associated with smoking. And that, so you were actually influencing people that were not choosing to smoke. And so when, when the bans came in, you know, um, we, all, we, all, we were all part of those bands coming in. I'm sure we'll all remember being in, in sort of uh, in settings where people were inside smoking. And, you know, it was awful. Um, and that, that ban of, you know, inside smoking had a profound impact on smoking rates. But interestingly, what we still see is the most vulnerable people within our population are the ones that are still the the most challenging to stop smoking you know when we look at those vulnerabilities that i talked to earlier people that are the hardened smokers have a variety of strong vulnerabilities that that influence that behavior too so i think there are some similarities but some quite important differences um you know and i and i guess i guess whilst there's been talk of the um the way in which obesity impacts other people the, the, the association is not so direct as the secondhand smoking one was so i think it, the, it from a policy perspective it's still a it's still a, a more challenging way to go you reminded me uh, that several years back i was up in manchester at manchester united and stand there and um the guy next to me turned to me and said uh, uh, you don't mind if I light a cigarette do you um, and I said well actually I, I have asthma so um, I do mind <laughs> and he didn't light up his cigarette actually so it's a really powerful illustration of what you're describing and and I can't think of anything similar in relation to food really. hmm. so Paul you're clearly a very creative and dynamic chap but you've told us that you're set on uh, proceeding with this uh, path for the time being but do you have a, a next big thing in mind not really i guess i feel as i'm still on that journey of, of you know i've not cracked the code um there's still lots of people out there with with um with challenges the, 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 the sort of policy landscape is really problematic. The, um, the, the vulnerable groups we talked about earlier are, are my real passion. I, if I could, if I really, you know, as where I would like to go is, is get inside some of those more vulnerable groups. Because I think, you know, again, learning, understanding, we've, we've done quite a bit of work with children um with you know a variety of disabilities and you know there's a real fascinating mix of of trying to understand um the factors that are driving uh, obesity in in those families within those sometimes special school settings within sort of you know um a variety of influences and to me that's where 
I'm really interested. I'm interested to sort of get inside and try and unpick it. That that's where I get my most reward. So so for me, I'm still busy with with the centre, uh, the Obesity Institute. Um, I'm still busy with uh, running more life, and you know, hope to do that for a few years to come. Um, and then I guess I guess. As if we keep growing, which will be great, there's probably much better people to look after those things than, than me. Um, and then I could probably focus on some of those more fascinating areas that I'd like to, to work in. Thank you. The conversation has been really fascinating and so relevant. And I think there are so many parallels with um, some of the stuff you're saying about obesity, Paul, and also the criminal justice sector in terms of policy uh, really resonates. Great. Thanks very much indeed, Paul. It's been really good meeting you.